This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. We are besieged by a literal deluge of data. Much of it is about population, economics, finance. Much of it has to do with things racial and class and, of course, political. But finding our way through the data can be really challenging. A few seem to have the gift of looking at the data and telling us what the picture is, what what the story is going to be, and where all this information is pointing us. My conversation today is with just one of those people. Joel Kotkin has been described by the New York Times as America's uber-geographer. He's the kind of person who can look at data and tell us what it means, give us the story, and he has that rare gift of being able to look to the future. He is also one of America's leading public intellectuals, and we are glad to welcome Joel Kotkin today to Thinking in Public. Mr. Kotkin, your new book, uh, The Next Hundred Million, America in 2050, has engendered a good deal of public conversation, and for good reason. What was behind your writing of this book? Well, I thought that there was a need to sort of take a, a more objective look. I was, I would look at it and say, look, what are America's possibilities? I mean, I think there is a very powerful intellectual tendency, and frankly, it's on the right and the left, which is very declinist. The United States is going into a, a period of historic decline, and and um, and I thought that we weren't leaving the next generation with very much hope for the future, except to maybe you know sort of. Uh, live much more modestly than their parents, and and uh, and I thought that that what we should be talking about is you know not that the country will stay the same, it will change quite radically, uh, but but it that it has a very viable future, and that it w- that future is worth working for. If people don't think that there is a way forward, they're going to tend to be much less likely to to devote themselves to changing things. Well, you have a very, very rare gift of looking at the future, and I mean that not only in terms of analyzing the data and making predictions, but also in, in conceiving uh, what might be. And I do find that as a very rare gift. Uh, when you look at America in the next hundred years, you're thinking about massive demographic changes, cultural changes, uh, changes in family life, uh, changes in population concentration. You're really telling a story there of where you think America is headed. Well, because I try to look at the demographic patterns. I mean, like, for instance, the big demographic pattern we have now is we have a, right now the baby boomers are aging. They're certainly getting uh, out of the, you know, they're at the very end, if not past their child-rearing years. We have a new generation called the millennials who are very large as well, who are their children, who are approaching the age of having kids. So we're sort of in this kind of trough between that we have an expanding workforce that's coming in, um, but we probably are going to see um, some very big changes even in the generations. In other words, the, the generation that's coming up now, say the millennials, they may be 30 35% uh, non-white compared to 15% or 20% in the past. Um, they have very different attitudes on social issues. They have different attitudes on, on political issues. The whole approach is different. And I, that's what I'm trying to deal with in part. And and then, of course, the immigrants, and they have their, you know, different things that they're bringing to the picture. And uh, and I think that, you know, we're, we're looking at a very radically changed country. I read several international papers a day, and I think most Americans are, are just blissfully unaware of the fact 
that there is a huge population problem looming. And, and yet it's not the population explosion that uh, we were warned about back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, most of the economies uh, around the world that are threatened by population change are threatened by a reduction or a decline in population that literally might be catastrophic. You contrast that to the United States. I mean, that, you know, that's certainly, you know, one that decline. And, you know, we could have that decline scenario. I mean, if you had a long-term recession, you had a radical change in immigration, uh, you had... um, uh, if you had a land use policies that said no, you can't build single family houses. We all have to live in dense apartments. All those things will will definitely reduce your the the birth rate. But the the real question is not so much the loss of population. That's the longer range issue. It's the pop, the fact that you may have um, more and more people retired and fewer and fewer people working. And for an economy or for a, a, a culture, that, that is uh, certainly a, a rather troubling trajectory. Right. Well, and it, and it has a lot of other effects. You know, if you have a society in which you know, many people don't have children and, and, and they, the ties between people are, are, are fairly weak, you're going to, you know, you're going to have some, uh, you know, there's going to be a lack of innovation as well. I mean, it's, I mean, we have to understand why people work so hard. Why do they... Why do they innovate? And a lot of that comes out of the need to support a family. And you take that away, and then you have a very, very different society. If you, know, if you go to a society in, in, in parts of Europe, um, you already can see this, um, you know, where there really is not a great deal of emphasis on, on, on changing and adapting because you've really hit this sort of steady state. In America, um, we're not really well-equipped for that kind of steady-state approach. When you talk about the family, you actually deal with some things that many other demographers don't deal with. And, and that I would just reduce to the word aspiration. You actually look at what people aspire to have and aspire to be and where they aspire to live. Tell us that story. Well, I think the big thing is that I think most Americans, first of all, you know, would like to have a family and children. They, um, and they remain engaged in that family. You know, the, one of the funny things about a lot of the social theorists that I sort of go back and forth with is they say, well, there are going to be all these empty nesters. I said, well, you think those empty nesters aren't parents? You know, you think when they retire that they may live either near or with their children, which is happening, of course, more and more, or uh, that they still aren't concerned about having room so the grandkids can, you know, move. I mean, most people retain their space much longer than anyone expected them to, and that these links of family, I think, are the only real way of having any kind of social cohesion. Um, And if you remove that, I think you would have a very hard time. And again, you may be able to get away with it a lot better, let's say, in Sweden than you can in the United States, but ultimately, over time, you know, the family structure is absolutely central. And this is something that very few people seem to really want to deal with. You know, in your book, you say this, only a society rooted both in traditional values and in social tolerance can support such vast changes in the physical landscape. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's really going to be very important over time because, you know, if we go the direction of, of let's say, the traditional multiculturalists who would say, well, every, everybody coming here, they're all equal to us and there's nothing special about the United States. It's just you happen to live there. Well, you know, that really you know, really won't get it done over time. There has to be some sort of unifying, if you will, myth or, uh, or you know, legend that holds the country together. And if you take that away, 
in a diverse country, then it is all about you know one little group fighting for its rights against another little group. Well, as you look to the future of the family, one of the things you point out is that we could be going at least back to the future a bit. You talk about such things as a return to the multi-generational household. Right. Well, this is clearly happening. Of the Pew data, uh, Pew Foundation data is quite explicit on this. We we used to have about one quarter of our households were that way. It went down to under ten percent. Now it's up to about sixteen percent. Um, and I think what we're going to see also is more support. I mean, in other words, families being defined in different ways. Like, for instance, you know, many times you have a divorced couple, but the father is very involved, even if he doesn't have any other kids. He, you know, he still has that uh, involvement. We have many grandparents now playing, you know, bigger roles with their, with, with their, with their grandchildren. We have aunts, uncles, and this was how family was. You know, if you read novels of the 19th and early 20th century. Families were not the Levittown, you know, 2.1 kid families. Oh, absolutely. And and furthermore, most of us in our family memories know that that is not true. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, you know, and by the way, this is something that comes out both in the immigrant experience and in, 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 the, in the Western expansion experience. Both experiences were disruptive by, by their nature. And so we, we tend to look back at either of those experiences, you know, Little House on the Prairie or you know, uh, or, or Hester Street, and we see these as sort of paradigms. But actually, it was a very, very, uh, you know, protean family being reinvented and being, uh, needing to change all the time. And I think that's where we're going back to. Well, I think it's interesting when you talk about some of that data, for instance, uh, people continually say that uh, the, the family's being marginalized in America because you look at the number of households and look how many of them do not include uh, parents living with their children. But as you point out, grandparents are still parents. Uh, and, well, and the same thing's true of marriage. You know, a widow is still a person who was married, just not married at the moment. Right. And also that that person may very well have, like, for instance, my, my father died 20 years ago. My mother still goes out to lunch with, you know, his sisters. I mean, those those patterns, those relationships still matter very much. And, of course, very often they're also tied up with businesses. And this is even stronger among immigrants than among native-born Americans. Now, when you talk about the, the future and the, and the family, one of the things you point out is that families really do tend to migrate, by and large, to suburbia. And, and that is not a, a broken trajectory in this country. No, no, there's no question. And, and interestingly enough, many single people now migrate to, to, uh, to the suburbs. I mean, or, or couples without children. I mean... Um, that will happen. That's happening more and more. That they, you know, for whatever reason, they they want a garage. They want a they want a backyard. They they want a place for a dog. They want to they want to have a garden. Um, they want a peace and quiet. I mean, one of the things I always argue about is the older you get, whether you have children or not, the older you get, the more you want peace and quiet. You probably want to own something, so you want to go to some place that has you know reasonable prices. Um, and, you know, there isn't this need for, for this very high-density existence. And, and this is why the whole idea of the massive condo boom was so overwrought, because they were assuming that people would cash out of their suburban homes and move to the city. I think that happened very, very little. Um, and I think it may have happened to some extent with the very wealthy who could afford to do it. But But generally speaking, it didn't happen. The people who ended up in these places were you know, became renters, and a lot and a lot of them were, if you, I just came back from Florida, a lot of them are foreign speculators, you know, people buying, you know, five, six, seven, eight apartments in Miami, 
because they're now half the price they were three years ago. Talk to me about the cities for a moment, because you, you deal a great deal with with the future of American cities and, and also with some rather counterintuitive predictions you make about where people are actually going to live and which cities are actually going to, to be growing and experiencing uh, the new America in their midst. Well, I mean, the, the, the census is pretty clear. I mean, there certainly places in Texas, uh, large parts of the southeast, a lot of states that now have net immigration, including Arkansas and Kentucky, you know, states that you consistently would think were losing people. And you have movement to sit some of the cities in the Great Plains. Um, there's been pretty strong growth in Fargo and Sioux Falls and some of these other areas. So, I mean, I think there's been, you know, there's been really, I think the idea that we're going to move into bigger and bigger cities, actually most of the very big cities, Chicago, New York, San Francisco, L.A., Philadelphia regions all grew well below the national average. Well, one of the things so, you point out is that many young people are attracted to cities, but uh, but the things they want as they get older, the cities do not supply, and they end up becoming uh, immigrants from the from the cities to some of the smaller cities, uh, or, uh, or or to suburbia. Right, because they, I mean, the the problem is is one of of, of housing costs. I mean, in order to live in Silicon Valley, to buy a house in Silicon Valley of any anything remotely decent, you're probably talking about a house of eight hundred, $900,000. Now, what person under 40 has, let's say, even if you need a 10% down payment, it's $90,000. You know, unless you have wealthy parents, you're not likely to get there. Yeah, someone pointed out to me the other day that if you're not a, a, a mega millionaire and you live in Palo Alto, you have to be a, a student at Stanford because they're the only people who can afford to live there. Uh, right, in exactly. student housing, I mean, yeah. I mean that. I mean that's one of the um, one of the, the you know the great problems that we have now is that we have uh, you know that we have this this situation where we have you know many people are are really being you know they're really becoming forced to to eliminate whole parts of, whole parts of the country that when I was a young person when I was in my thirties I had many more options of where I could live than I would have if I was 30 now. One of the challenges in talking to Joel Kotkin is that there's so many things I want to talk about. He has written on so many fascinating topics, and even though they are all connected, the connecting theme may actually be the big question, what about the future? Joel when you look at the future of American cities, you, you talk about the development of the so-called luxury cities. Describe yes. those. Well, these are cities, and, and there are very few of them, or there are sections of cities, which are really you know, places for the, for the wealthy to live. And I mean, if you read you know, the, the New York Times and you look at the ads in the New York Times, I, you know, I, I have great respect for the New York Times, but you can see you know, those, those, many of the products they're advertising are ones that 98% of the population can't even think about as, as, as something that they would buy. So I, I think what you're seeing is you're seeing a, a, a rapid um, concentration of very wealthy people and their servants in many of our you know, great central cities. This is particularly true of New York. I mean, remember, New York is, is by far the most important and evolved of the American cities in, the, sort of, uh, in this direction towards a very wealthy core with, with you know, largely poor people around it, and then middle-class pockets scattered throughout the city. 
and those pockets are getting smaller, of course. Now, when you look at these cities, you're really talking about Los Angeles, uh, New York, Chicago, and then uh, the areas you identify, such as Silicon Valley. Right. And these are places they have just become very, very expensive. But on the other hand, you really are giving hope to communities like Omaha, Nebraska, or, or Terre Haute, Indiana, because you're pointing out that, that many actually very skilled workers, many people in the, the knowledge industries are, are now moving there. But you also make the very interesting observation that immigrants are also now landing in these cities in America's heartland, what the folks on the coast used to call flyover country. Exactly. Although that, that's been a huge shift. I mean, the two, the, the immigrants are, are moving, you know, to smaller communities. They're moving to places like Nashville, to Kansas City, to cities like that. You know, and frankly, they're going to be attracted to those cities where there are jobs. I mean, they, they, most immigrants immigrate for upward mobility and for their you know, family's aspirations, and they're going to go to places that, where they have a chance of doing it. I mean, that's I mean, one of the really interesting parts of the census is L.A. County is one of the very few places in the United States that has less Hispanic children now than it had a decade ago. Well, when you start looking at the future here and, you, and you're advising corporations and organizations, uh, when, when you talk about being where families are, you're really affirming in this book, looking at all the data, that if you're going after families, by and large, that means you are focusing on the suburbs. Right. You're focusing on the suburbs, and you're focusing on some of the more affordable regions of the country. Now, now, uh, what I would argue is that what we've done is we've, we're so... Uh, uh, now, some companies, because they don't really need anything else, are going to tend to only be in certain markets because they have very, very high wage employment and because there are relatively few jobs. But if you take a look at what's happening now, for instance, you think a company like Goldman Sachs, which is you know, considered you know, the, the ultimate high wage employer, well, Goldman Sachs now has a huge operation in Salt Lake City, Utah. You, many of the Silicon Valley companies have been establishing operations in, in Utah and Texas. Um, there's a reason for this movement to take place, and it's taking place because people can afford to have, have homes, and they, um, and of course, you know, at most engineers, by the time an engineer is 35 or 40, the vast majority of them are going to have kids. And they want a backyard. And they, well, you know, you have a kids, you, you're going to probably want a backyard. I mean, now, there are a few places in America where you can live in an urban environment and you can have, you know, a decent amenities and, and, a, and a low enough density that, that's livable, like in parts of Philadelphia. But these are very few. And, of course, in, in New York, which has the most of them, or San Francisco, they're, they're too expensive for all but a handful of people. Looking at the future of cultures, uh, the, the population is one issue. But as you point out, it's driven by values. And you make two disconnected statements, at least they're disconnected in, in terms of your book, they're, they're, okay. they're separated by many chapters, but, but you use the same language with both. And I, and I want to repeat it to you, Mr. Cock. And you say that, that we should reconceive immigration because every immigrant is a vote for America's future. Later, right. when relating to, uh, to birth rates, you point out using the same language that every decision to have a child is a, is a vote for the future. So right. you're really suggesting that, that human beings, <laughs> to speak of the species, but, uh, but certainly Americans, thinking of the country, uh, need to re- realize that looking to the future is actually very essential. Well, I think that's, that's totally true. And I think particularly for a country like the United States where, you know, we're, it really that, that forward-looking project, 
projection, that idea of an evolving society of adaptation, is that the key, we're not a old traditional culture that's trying to adjust to modernity without changing its essential character. I mean, if you look at what's happening in Europe right now, that's, you know, uh, the, the French among others, you know, they, their, their goal is to maintain their culture. They, they understand that they're not at the center of world history anymore, but the, the, it's about a level of comfort. And, and there are many parts of the United States which have these characteristics where it's really not about doing something ambitious or, or, or you know, doing, you know, moving upwards. It's about preserving the, the privileges of certain classes. And I think that, that that's going to be a great struggle in the next 40 or 50 years in this country. You know, do you have an upward mobility agenda or do you have a steady state agenda? And there are many people you know, who prefer a steady-state agenda, you know, gradually, you know, lower population, um, a fewer children, um, slow economic growth. Um, and, of course, this is very popular with many of the people in the green uh, movement. Yeah, but I honestly don't understand their math. I'll, I'll, I'll just say that, you know, there, there are ideological and, and theological and philosophical issues uh, where where I have trouble with the way the green movement thinks, but I also just don't understand their math. Who's going to pay for all the people who aren't going to be working? I, I don't I don't understand how they think this is going to work. Well, I, the only way out of it is if you are believe that information technology will solve virtually every problem. Um, and my view, from a historical point of view, is technology creates as many problems and many times as it has it solved, and. You know, you, what, you, what you need to do is you need to understand that there is really a, a tremendous um, movement right now uh, in, in terms of, of, of saying, well, you know, we can, we, we can not do all these traditional tasks, but we can just be more creative and we can do certain kind of very you know, elite um, operations. Well, the reality is that other countries in the world are evolving very rapidly. And we're going to have to be good about, about a lot of different things. And, and yet you cannot have an economy based on, you know, Facebook and Google. It just it doesn't work. The, the, the numbers don't work. The, you, you don't have enough jobs for enough kinds of people. You could end up, and this would be a possibility, we could end up in a society in which a, a very small number of people live really, really well, and the vast majority of people barely make, make by, and then there's a large group of poor people. And we, we could be heading in that direction. I think that's why we have so much political dissatisfaction in this country right now. And again, I, I would say that goes to the right and the left. So if you're asking, what are the hard questions that we should be thinking about? If you're projecting, because frankly, you're, uh, you're well situated in America's public life as one who has a very optimistic uh, viewpoint looking to the future. In fact, your your book is really all about that, but it's also pretty honest. What what are the hard things we're going to have to face, the hard questions we're going well, to have to ask? We're going to have to understand that, that our advantages um, have to be taken advantage of. For instance, natural gas, something like that. Our natural resources, our food production, our ability to manufacture things, our large domestic markets, our connections to the rest of the world through immigration. These are all great natural advantages, but we have to pursue those advantages. And if we don't, I think where we're headed is to an ever more bifurcated, class, you know, driven society in which, you know, it becomes more and more important, you know, what family you're, bo- you're, you're born with and uh, what kind of 
inheritance you have. I mean, those will become more and more important, and it will become very, very difficult for people um, who, unless they are at the exceptional high end of the educational pyramid, to move from one class to another. That is a, a recipe for decline and and and, uh, and decay of a society, and that would be my. That's by far my biggest worry. How would you advise America on the issue of immigration to take one of the hottest political issues? You really don't deal with as much politically as uh, as just a part of the of the demographic destiny of America. How would you advise us to reconceive that contentious issue? Well, I would look at it this way. I think that what you do is you have to make a very strong point that the um, uh, that that basically. We have to change our immigration policy to be a little bit more, to some extent, the way the Canadians have it, in that it really is insane that a guy graduates with a Ph.D. in, in computer science from MIT and we send them back to India. Uh, you know, if we can keep that person here, we want to keep them here. On the other hand, I think the idea that we, we just follow, uh, let's say, uh, family reunification we have to be more careful that we're that we're also not importing just people who are going to end up, you know, being on Medicaid or being, uh, or on the other hand, not being able to contribute much to society. I think we have to become more focused on skilled immigration, and I think we also have to um, understand that just family unit reunification can't be the only uh, the only thing that we that we look at. I mean, we have to move towards a more balanced immigration policy. I would see over time trying to have more Im- legal immigration. Obviously, the illegal immigration is a big problem. The people who oppose illegal immigration, when you scratch the surface, they tend to oppose all immigration. In your books, you do address the issue of religion in public life. Right. D- speak about that and, and project the future. Well, I mean, the oddity of America in part is that about 60% of Americans consider religion important. And in most of our competitors in East Asia and Europe, it's about 15%. You know, the old famous story that they always say that there are more people in the Czech Republic who believe in UFOs than believe in God. And, you know, that's probably not too distant from the truth. So, I mean, I think religion is one of the things that America has going for it. And, of course, I think that one of the big things is that religious institutions, and I'm I wouldn't call myself a greatly religious person at all, although my daughter does go to a religious, uh, my youngest daughter does go to a religious school, um, that the that the religious organizations provide a ballast, and this is part of the whole question on class, that in other words, religious organizations and volunteer organizations like the Boys and Girls Club do very important things, and there are no equivalents of those. If you go to Europe, there is no Boys and Girls Club. There is very weak uh, religious organizations. And those religious organizations, they play a very important role. I remember during the whole Katrina uh, situation that it was the evangelicals more than anyone. And I have to say the white evangelicals, although the black evangelicals were really good too, that took on a lot of the burden of what needed to be done with with the refugees on Katrina. So these are very important institutions. I know now I'm probably going to disagree. I probably disagree with you on a whole bunch of issues regarding, you know, what the role of the state should and shouldn't be. But but I, I definitely think that, that that the religious institutions of the country are an enormous advantage.
government universities industries, the, the public sector is very interested in what Joel Kotkin's talking about. They, they consume his data. They, they look at his analysis. And they conceive of a future in terms of where they're going to direct their energies, where they're going to develop a new market, where they're going to locate a new plant. Christians looking at the same data need to come with some very different questions. Our concern is not so much where we can exploit a market. It's where we can missiologically understand a responsibility and gear ourselves, project ourselves to be faithful in terms of our responsibility. Our responsibility is churches. Our responsibility is Christians and Christian institutions. The data that is assimilated in so much of the work of Joel Kotkin is absolutely fascinating. That's what makes the books at the very first read so very interesting. He is also a brave thinker who is willing to point out where the conventional wisdom is clearly wrong. And in so many cases, the conventional wisdom has been clearly wrong. For instance, if you go back to the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the urban strategists were looking to the future, suggesting that the future of America was to be concentrated in only three major population centers, basically California, the Northeast, and Chicago in its environment. Well, that just hasn't happened. Uh, not only has it not happened, you might even say that the opposite has happened. Over the last 20 years or so, there's been an enormous migration toward mid-sized cities, and for reasons that are actually now quite understandable. There are some other things that Joel Kotkin talks about that require us to rethink what we would perhaps anticipate would be our reaction to certain challenges or, or to certain pictures. For instance, the picture of a diverse America. There's no question that when Joel Kotkin looks at the data and deals with it so responsibly, he tells us that we're not actually choosing whether America is going to be a diverse society in the future. We're either going to acknowledge it and get ourselves ready for it, or we're simply going to live in denial and find ourselves surprised by it. We're now looking at an avalanche of data, even after the publication of his book, that affirms his point rather conclusively. For instance, if you look at the, the rates of immigration and the birth rates, there is no question that America is going to be much more Hispanic as we look to the future. Just recently, it was pointed out that Cook County, Illinois, one of those places which have been a, a concentration of African-American political power, is now marked by the fact that there are more Hispanics in that, in that county than African-Americans. Most Americans would be absolutely shocked by that realization. But that's a sign not only of the past, but of the future. And that's where Joel Kotkin comes along and says, if you want to look at something that tells you where the future is headed, just think of this. What's the birth rate? And that's why if you look at the relative position of America versus other civilizations and cultures, there's no doubt that America has an incredible advantage. If you want to think in economics, think of it as an economic advantage. The advantage of having young workers, young educated workers, Compare that to Europe, which has had a birth rate decline from the last several decades that is now apparently almost irreversible, and Asia, which had been in recent years the, the real focus of concern about a burgeoning population growth, which is now actually being challenged by a population dearth. You even have China rethinking its infamous one-child-only policy because it turns out that one-child-only isn't going to support a civilization in which you have multiple parents, grandparents, aunts, and uncles they're going to need support, and factories are going to need workers, and institutions that are going to need students, and all the rest. Missiologically speaking, Christians need to be able to look at this data with a rather brave attitude. We need to look at this and say, where is this heading? Where is America heading? And America is explicitly Joel Kotkin's concern, as in his new book, The Next Hundred Million, America in 2050. Evangelical Christians in particular have been keen to be consumers of data, but often on the back end of the equation. 
we have, as churches, institutions, and mission organizations, very often been looking at the data that tells us where we have been and helps us to evaluate where we were or were not faithful. Well, we need to reconceive and start looking to the future. It's not as if we do not have data that will drive us to certain conclusions. Birth rate does tell us what kind of population we're going to face in the future. The kind of population movements by immigration and by other population shifts that we can see in the present will determine a great deal of where we go in the future. Now, let's think about where young evangelicals are right now in terms of of their plans for the future. Joel Kotkin is writing knowing that organizations like the Boys and Girls Clubs, uh, like the Pentagon, like the Congress, or the University of, of California in Los Angeles. They're looking at the future thinking, how do we conceive our programs? How, how do we develop uh, and anticipate the future? But Christians need to learn to do that. And younger Christians right now, younger evangelicals in particular, well, many of them are being drawn to the cities. Well, Joel Kotkin explains why that's so. The cities are extremely attractive to young, intelligent, well-educated people. It turns out that the cities are largely made up of young well-educated people in terms of the population flow in and out. But it is a population flow in and out. It turns out that many of those same young people, when they get married and start having children, end up having rather traditional aspirations. That's why if you go to many of these big cities, you'll notice that many of these evangelical ministries are filled with very, very young people. Now, that's not to say they shouldn't happen. As one of the pastors of one of the most remarkable of these churches in, in America's largest city told me, when we capture the inflow and the outflow, that's a tremendous ministry. And of course it is. It, it, it's literally the movement of, of millions and millions of young people. But when you look to the future, one of the things that Joel Kotkin tells us that denominations and churches ought to really hear loudly is that families are still going to be concentrated in the suburbs. One of the most interesting things that is documented in his writings is how minority populations end up aspiring to be in the suburbs. It turns out that even though they often arrive in the cities, they generally do not stay there, certainly in a generational transfer. They begin to move to the heartland cities, which, by the way, tells us something else. Many times we buy into the logic that America is really a coastal civilization and that what we have in the middle is flyover country, And in that flyover country, you're going to have diminishing population. You're going to have a brain drain and a birth dearth. You're going to have a situation largely uh, pictured by the closing of rural churches and the merging of of aging congregations. But Joel Kotkin comes back to tell the business and economic and political culture that that's just not the way it's turning out. It's turning out that Terre Haute, Indiana or, or Omaha, Nebraska are places where there is a net inflow of immigration. People are moving into these places, states, as he mentioned in our conversation, like Arkansas and Kentucky. People are now moving into these states because they offer a lifestyle and aspirational opportunities that are unprecedented and unavailable, especially given the costs, the incredible high costs of living in the cities. But the cities are still very important. And one of the things that strikes me in looking at Kotkin's research is that we can come to new understandings of why the cities are so difficult to reach. If you think about all of the demographic complexity, you think about all of the racial and economic and ethnic diversity, and you concentrate it in one place, well, that's where you end up with the cities. A very fascinating insight that he brings is the idea of these luxury cities. In other words, the aspirations that are at least, uh, well, the driving energies of many of these great cities, in particular, he mentions New York, but you could also include Los Angeles, Chicago, Silicon Valley, some of the other places are these massive aspirational urban concentrations, uh, they're really looking for 
a, a, a luxury lifestyle. The, the, their aspirations are, are the, the shops on, on Fifth Avenue, uh, the, the kind of luxury apartments that are advertised in the New York Times. But those are going to be available to very few people. By and large, these cities are going to be made up if current trends do not change, as he said, and we should hear this very clearly, uh, they're going to be made up of the ultra-rich and their servants, the people who make a society work around these incredible concentrations of wealth. That's not where most of us are. Uh, that's not where most of us aspire to be. And that's the reason why, as we think missiologically toward the future and we develop a genuine missional vision, it's going to mean that we're going to have to give increased attention where we have often thought there was less interest, for instance, in places like the suburbs, where it turns out that's where the families not only are, but are almost surely going to be for generations to come. And in some of these smaller and regional cities, and in some of these states, inland states, states that are not the part of America that uh, end up being on the front of the travel magazines and, uh, and on the, the front pages of the New York Times, but the kind of places where real people live and real ministry takes place. Our responsibility for the Great Commission, our responsibility in evangelization and, and in creating faithful, establishing faithful congregations is going to require us to go all kinds of places, to develop all kinds of skills. If the business and cultural and political community knows that, if the cultural creatives know that, and the titans of industry know that, why are we as evangelical Christians not saying to the rising generation that we can see before us, you need to look at all of this and think about God's calling in your life and, and develop the kinds of skills, develop the kinds of abilities, and, and acquire the kinds of knowledge that will enable you to be effective for the Great Commission and for the cause of Christ and His kingdom in the world to come. It is simply not true simply to say that demographics is destiny. It is, however, insane to say that we should not pay attention to the data that is so clearly now set before us. Faithfulness is not a matter of statistics, and we know that. But this kind of data is essential to our understanding, not only of the present, but of the future. We need to look at the material, we need to look at the information, we need to assimilate the data bravely. And we need to do it as Christians. Thanks to my guest, Joel Kotkin, for thinking with me today. This marks the 30th and final edition of Thinking in Public for our first season. I want to thank you for joining with me in this experience, and I look forward to the next season where we will continue intelligent conversations about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.